A true life story of daring and sacrifice demonstrates how compassion for strangers can bring the whole world together. Are you just watching episode 132, 13 Lives? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And this month we are doing a really interesting movie about, you know, a, it's actually, it's a tr true life story. It really happened. I remember when it was in the news back in 20, was it 18, 2018? It was four years ago. It, so yeah. Yep, yeah. 2018. Yeah. It was a real life thing. And it happened, I think maybe a year before we did our movie on the 33, which is a similar story mm -hmm. in which the world came together to help 33 miners who are trapped in a Chilean mine deep, 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 deep underground. And that one, thankfully, had nothing to do with water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you say. <laughs> I'm actually scared of water. So, uh, you know, the whole thought of scuba diving for six to 10 hours, just literally. Uh, Whereas yeah. I'm claustrophobic, so both movies hit me hard. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this movie was directed by Ron Howard, and it starred two fairly well-known actors, ones that I have seen in other movies, Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell. And I didn't even recognize them because they did such a good job turning yeah. <laughs> themselves into the actual British divers who saved the day that they really became John and Rick to me. And yeah. it wasn't until I was researching for the podcast that I realized these are actors I actually knew from somewhere else. It's, I was actually a third of the way through the movie before I recognized Mortensen. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how well they transformed themselves. If you go and watch a video of the actual divers, I actually will post some in our show notes that YouTube links that show interviews with the actual divers, it will surprise you how well these yeah. two actors turned themselves into them. Separated at birth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that was the case for a lot of the actors, actually. They, they really did a very good job with casting in this movie. And I was utterly impressed with the documentary style accuracy that's in this mm -hmm. movie as well. I think Ron Howard really wanted to keep as much of the detail of, of not just the actual rescue, but also of the culture of Thailand and you know, like the way people interacted and the way the community existed. That's why so much of it is subtitled, because they didn't want to put English words in these actors. I, actually, I think a lot of the Thai actors didn't speak English, so I imagine that made some in yeah, interest. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. It was a movie that definitely kept the culture in there, and it was a good portrayal of it. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it. It, it was interesting. I I recommended this movie to my parents to watch, and I asked them afterwards what they thought of it, and my dad was like, too much bowing and idol worship. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's <laughs> Buddhism for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and we'll talk about that. That's actually the first theme we're going to talk about. Before we get into that, I do want to mention the music, which is by Benjamin Walfish. I'm hoping I'm saying his name right. It's spelled very interesting. I'm pretty sure he won't mind. <laughs> yeah. 
I think he really did a good job of like tying in like a, a feeling of Thailand and Asian culture into the music, but at the same time, it has a a bit of a suspense feel to it. You know, it, they really built the suspense of them, you know, swimming through these dark passages, and mm-hmm. it helps communicate that atmosphere of the movie. So it's a very subtle, very quiet. There's very little, you know, like triumphant music in this. It's just all very yeah. subtle and quiet. It's probably a little weird, but the score reminded me a little bit of Regarding Henry. Do you remember that one? I do remember the movie, but that was a really long time ago, so I don't yeah, recall the music. <laughs> it, uh, Harrison Ford about the the guy who gets shot in the head. He's a real jerk before he gets shot in the head, and he has to relearn how to be a person and realizes as he's doing that how much of a jerk he was yeah Uh, anyway it is one of the very few soundtracks that i went out and bought after seeing the movie wow you go (laughs) it's uh it was just so apt for the scenes it was in i i thought this guy did a great job yeah yeah it's uh, i've never heard of him before i'd have to go research to see what other scores or whether he's a new new score. I mean, we need to get new composers. We <laughs> we've for so long on the on the big <laughs> no the big greats and they're all aging out, so it's time to get some new blood in there, but yeah. Let me play a little bit of that music before we ha- continue on. a very tense music. I think it kind of helped build the tension that goes on throughout this movie. And along with, if you listen to the whole score, there's actually some music where there's women like singing and tie and that kind of stuff. So there's a definite range of music in the score. I did watch this as a streaming movie, but I do believe there was a limited theatrical release. So there were instances, some maybe some theaters countrywide that had it in the theater. But if you had an Amazon Prime account, I hope that you've had the opportunity to watch it. It kind of surprised me that it was a streaming movie, you know, with a high-end director like Ron Howard and high-end actors. like Big names. Yeah, big names. That it would just go straight to streaming for Amazon. I thought that was interesting. It really does highlight how the pandemic has changed everything, right? Yeah. There's no way this would have gone straight to streaming pre-pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was an Amazon original. Amazon made it. So, I mean, that's that's just kind of crazy that they're able to put such big budgets behind something like this. Now, I do know that the whole thing was filmed in Australia and that a lot of the actors because Australia was so shut down for the pandemic, they actually had to be quarantined when they first came to Australia and do all of their preliminary training and stuff from from the quarantine via Zoom. So they met and did like script tests with their fellow actors and stuff. They did that via Zoom when they first started uh, working on the movie. Mm. And all of the actors that played divers in the movie did all of their own diving. They actually had training with, I think it was Navy divers and possibly some of the cave divers that were involved 
help train them. According to IMDb, they trained with Rick and John. Yeah. And so they, they wanted to get the best performances out of them underwater, and they wanted to be able to do close-ups and actually see them in the gear. And so they did all of their own diving. And they did create a underwater obstacle course so that they could get all of the tight <laughs> space filming and stuff. So none of it was actually filmed in in a flooded cave, thankfully. But they did do all their own but diving. You, you sure couldn't tell by looking at it. I'll tell you why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It's the the one thing that stood out to me was uh, I thought, you know, this water should be muddier. But then I realized, well, that wouldn't make much of a movie, would it? Well, they they said that in one of the interviews I was watching, they said that when they would first dive in, the water would be clear because it was being filtered through the stone. And so it was actually almost drinkable. It was so clear. But then Mm. as they would swim through, they would stir up sediment and mud. And so it was always muddier coming back because their their diving movements would would, uh, make it muddier. So they said that the trip back was always worse than the trip in. So... As I mentioned before, this is very similar to The 33, which was a a happy ending story, and it was a true life story. A lot of the things I was seeing in the the behind-the-scenes stuff about this movie is that everybody was saying that you couldn't make this movie up. Like, if somebody had tried to dream up this story, just from a fiction standpoint, they would never have dreamed it up. That it's, you know, that truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. And, And you know... As I was watching it, I was thinking, if this weren't a real story, this is where they would have something big happen. Right. <laughs> you know, somebody would die or a, a giant shark would come out and eat Vigo Morganson or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and somebody did die. That's the sad thing is that yeah. there was... Two, actually. Well, there was a fatality during the rescue, and then there was somebody yep. who died later, which I found very interesting that they really seemed to zoom in on and and make note of with camera angles, the amount of cuts and scrapes the divers were getting, getting around. In, mm-hmm. in fact, I, I remember there was one scene where they showed Rick in the ready room spraying antiseptic on scrapes on his arm. Yeah. And... So I think they made a, a big point of showing how bloody they got, you know, just getting around all these rocks and stuff, because the other person who mm-hmm. died actually died of a blood infection from, you know, a scrape. And yeah, I think that was the reason they did that. In one of the very earliest diving scenes, I noticed that one of the two divers, I don't remember who it was, his knuckles were bloody. Mm-hmm. As they were swimming, and, and I was like, wow, that is an attention to detail I never would have thought of. Yeah. Yeah, but they made a point. I think if you really pay attention, I've watched the movie, I think, four times now. Wow. Yeah. Well, I watched it with some friends, so I the first two times were, uh. I wasn't like watching it for the podcast. But it was really obvious to me by the third viewing that they were really spotlighting the injuries, you know, without actually saying, mm. oh, look, I got hurt. They were just kind of like <laughs> showing it. So that was... And then one of my other initial reactions to this was the emphasis on the Thai culture and the religion. I could see as my dad reacted that it would be offensive to some people, but it is a cultural thing. And I think it's appropriate, you know, that this movie is, you know, spotlighting the Thai culture because it is about Thai people and the Thai government and the Thai Navy and all of the villagers and 
that stepped up and sacrificially gave in order to see these boys rescued. And I think it was highly appropriate to spotlight their culture in this movie because so much of it Mm -hmm. was about the Thai people. You know, it gives us something to talk about and we are going to, you know, deal to some extent with Buddhism. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on Buddhism, so we're not going to delve real deep into it, but we do want to talk about it. And then the other thing that I really noticed, I'm not sure whether you noticed this or not, was that every scene of the camp, they always showed like three spotlighted scenes of people making food or eating. It was just like... Yeah, I admit I paused it to go get some crackers. (laughs) It made me hungry. And I'm going to have to go find a good Thai restaurant, I think. My wife asked me what I wanted for dinner, and I said, you know, I could really go for some Chinese. (laughs) You know, whenever we do a movie based on true events, we approach it differently because we go in knowing how it ends, right? right? Yeah. Most of the time. And what we're really doing is we're we're watching the movie for the skill of the creative team behind it. Ron Howard, Viggo Mortensen, and Colin Farrell just do such an incredible job in this one. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's I didn't see... Vigo or Colin, I saw the two divers and I was completely and utterly lost in their portrayals. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we have to look at is, okay, how true to the the story is it? This Weird Al Yankovic biopic is coming up <laughs> on Roku, which looks hilarious and it's written in part by Weird Al, but it's completely and utterly false (laughs) so i mean when they say based on true story it might just be a gimmick it might just be a tagline Mm -hmm. but in this case at least one of the two divers really was praising the accuracy of the movie yeah i love it when they're accurate and it's still enjoyable it does show that the team behind it did a really good job yeah and And I think that, you know, the few places where they went away from the true events was either to shorten things or to make them more dramatic. Like the the diver who died, the story was mostly correct, but what he was doing when he died was different. And they made it look like that he was carrying something to the boys. He was actually staging air canisters, air tanks. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was on his return dive that he ran out of air. And so the issue that they showed actually on the screen was not entirely accurate. I mean, he did die because he ran out of air. So, you know, in the end, it still was mostly correct. Yeah. I would imagine that they they made that change because of the the pacing of the movie. Because, you know, at that point, we were two-thirds into this two-and-a-half-hour movie. Right. So by that point, they had to already be in the rescuing, and they had him, if I remember correctly, he was bringing wetsuits to the boys. Yes, that was in the movie. That's what he was doing. So yeah, I feel like they did a service to it by tying it to the story and, you know, making it every bit as meaningful as it was in real life. I also, I appreciated the way that Ron Howard included the spirituality of the boys and the coach and the families. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is not Christianity is not the one true religion, but it's a reality in this world that, that we're faced with. And honest portrayals like this, where it doesn't 
judge one way or another. I mean, we've seen portrayals of other religions where it seems like the only purpose of the of including it is to condemn Christianity or to condemn Islam or or whatever. Right. But Howard did it in a very neutral, very truthful way. I appreciated that. Yeah, they said in some of the background videos that I watched that even like the fact that the governor had an uh, assistant that kind of spoke to people on his behalf and and brought it had a lot to do with like the Thai culture where they're not allowed to certain people are not allowed to speak to other people. It's like a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And he was honest with that as well. I mean, he actually created characters in order to to maintain that cultural flow that would make the Thai people comfortable if they were to watch the movie. He didn't want to offend mm. their culture. Yeah. You know, how many Oscars does that man have for best film now? Is it three? I don't know. <laughs> he just demonstrated that he has experiential chops. Right. In a way that we will talk about later in this episode. <laughs> And it really shows. It it really does. Ron Howard, I mean, you and I are old enough to, to look back and think of him as uh, Howie Cunningham. But uh, that guy is really good at what he does. Mm -hmm. And it, it shows in 13 Lives. I did want to also mention the way that everybody pulled together. Reminded me uh, a bit of immediately after 9-11 how... You know, all of New York City pulled together to recover from the terrorist strikes on the Twin Towers. Yeah. One story that came to mind with me was how organized crime was working with law enforcement to manage the docks and to make sure supplies were getting in and out as needed. And when they were showing how everybody was pitching in, the hydrologist who was trying to prevent water from seeping in to the mountain and the rice farmers who gave up their harvest. It really brought that sense of national pride and national compassion to mind. Yeah. And I wish we would see more of it without having to have a tragedy, uh, <laughs> a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, you know, it, there's great things in humanity and there's bad things in humanity. And it's, it is unfortunate that, you know, it takes, you know, tragic events in order to see, you know, the good things in humanity. We are going to discuss yeah. that further, so we won't belabor that point at this moment. Mm -hmm. Before we move into our theme discussion, I do want to remind everybody that they can connect with us uh, as a subscriber. So you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. We are not as prolific as some podcasts, but we have been pretty steady. We've managed to get... I think one episode out a month for at least two years straight now. And prior to that, I think we only missed like one month or two in all of the time that Tim yeah. Tim has been my co-host. So we're doing really quite well of being a steady source of this content. And I'm not superstitious, but you just jinxed it. No, 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 no. We didn't jinx it. <laughs> We do want you to make sure that you, if you have the opportunity, wherever you listen to this podcast, to rate it, we would appreciate a rating. And we would really love it if you would share our podcast whenever you are in social media. If you think of anybody else who would love to, you know, listen in on a movie discussion from a Christian worldview, we'd love for you to share it because that word of mouth is where we're going to get most of our listeners. 
So if you know somebody who enjoys a good movie discussion, share our podcast, invite them to our Discord server so that uh, we can interact as a community on, on these topics. You can join our Facebook discussion group by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community or our Discord community by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. And we would love for you to join us. All right. So as we have already mentioned, our first theme that we're going to discuss is Buddhism. And hopefully we won't spend the entire podcast talking about this. <laughs> it's not a, a faith that I know a whole lot about. Believe it or not, I did have a roommate in college who was a Japanese Buddhist. She had a little shrine that she kept in our dorm room, <laughs> and morning and night she would have a set of prayers that she would open the shrine and do her her uh, little uh, beads that she would she would rub or something. I'm not entirely sure what all she was doing, and she would mumble her prayers to the shrine, and it was an interesting experience for as long as we shared a room. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really take time to really understand what it was she was doing. And that was my fault for not, you know, I, I think in college, I was a little leery of, of absorbing, you know, that kind of stuff. I was afraid it would affect my own faith. And so instead of mm-hmm. being interested in, in what she was doing and what her faith, you know, portrayed, I was kind of shutting her out and putting a wall up. And and that was wrong of me because I think sometimes as Christians, our best in with people of other faiths is to ask them to share what they believe. Because if we have to be willing to ask the questions and understand things from their point of view before we can explain to them how Jesus is different and why Jesus is better. And so that is the best way to open a door with somebody from another faith is to ask them questions about what they believe. And I missed an opportunity there, and I I kind of regret it, to be honest. Thailand is, oh, what is it, 95% Buddhist. So it is a heavily Buddhist country. I think a lot of those countries in that area of of the world are mostly Buddhist. And I think Muslims are trying to take over, but for the most part, they are mostly Buddhist. Hmm. As I was doing a little bit of research before we recorded, it's interesting that of all of the faiths, not only is Buddhism the oldest, it it dates way prior to Christ, it is also one of the most secular uh, faiths in that they don't really believe in gods per se, they believe more in enlightenment, and it fits more with a humanistic worldview, and it also fits more with evolution, because they don't have a creation myth in Buddhism. So they don't really care where hmm. what the origins are. And also their the path to enlightenment is also considered a spiritual evolution. So, you know, it, it ties in well with the physical evolution. So that is one of the reasons why Buddhism seems to be spreading at an alarming rate here in the West. And I know quite a few people who are involved in mindfulness and yoga and all of these other things that come out of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. And, you know, people talk about mindfulness and companies push mindfulness as if it's not tied to any religion. And while I guess it can be sort of divorced from a faith. Mm-hmm. I don't really see that it's a good thing. No, I guess definitely is, not uh, the way to put it. Yeah, I understand what they want to do. I guess. Yeah. What is it that story in the scripture about the 
the man that is demon possessed and, and it, they drive out the demon and, and he's all clean. And then he didn't replace it with, with Christ. And so more demons came, moved in and took over. And, and I think mm-hmm. that in a way, that's what mindfulness is. It's like you clear your mind. But if you're not meditating on the right things, you're clearing your mind and just opening and cleaning up the space for bad things to come in. So I, I don't think mindfulness is, is a good thing because it's, yeah, it's all about meditating and cleaning your, clearing your mind of negativity or whatever. But if you don't replace it with something good, all you're doing is sweeping out <laughs> the house for the bad things to move back in. Nature abhors a vacuum. Yes. When it comes to, a- approaching other religions as Christians, it's really easy because, especially as evangelicals and Reformed, we know that Jesus is the only way (laughs) to salvation. There are no other ways. So, you know, there are Christians out there who look at this and go, well, they're going to hell for sure. And they condemn the practitioner of the other religion in their heart. But that's not really the way that we need to be looking at it. We need to look at Buddhists as potential pre-Christians. <laughs> you know, that they can be saved. There isn't a man, woman, or child walking on this planet who is beyond the reach of Christ's salvation. Mm-hmm. We need to approach this through an understanding of where humanity gets this desire from. You know, in prepping for this recording, I was looking at an article from the Gospel Coalition on uh, how to relate to other religions, and there was a quote in there that I appreciated. Non-Christian religions are not completely false. A Christian understanding of the goodness of creation, the reality of general revelation, the permeance of the image of God in all humans, and the gift of God's common grace leads us to expect that non-Christian religions contain some element of truth and add some value to their cultures. And that's true because, I mean, I might be wrong. I'm I'm no anthropologist here, but I don't think there has ever been a culture that developed without any religious vein through it, right? Mm-hmm. So my belief is that Buddhism and really say Muslims because of how they developed, but Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism, I think that they're all just a cry out, a grasping on of the limited understanding that God's common grace and general revelation give us. You know, it's a law that's written on our hearts. Mm. Yeah, and you, you know that you take it back to the initial, the original Buddha is actually a term for enlightened ones. So the initial teacher or man who became a Buddha was who started the the religion. I don't think he was out to start a religion. He just found a path to enlightenment, and he wanted to share it with other people. And he never wanted to be a deity. He didn't put himself forward as a god. It was more of that's why I say it's really closer to humanism than anything else because he. Mm. Yep. He found a way that he thought would bring people into a spiritual peace of mind. And it didn't have a God. It didn't have a faith. It was more of a finding existence in self that satisfied, I guess, in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, nothing, you know, play, praying to idols, which, you know, during that time was probably the only other option. 
you know, it was, you know, to find some piece of wood or stone and pray to it. And yeah. perhaps he had realized that praying to wood and stone does nothing. And so he found a way to make himself self-reliant and and find peace of mind through that. And And it's sad because we see in scripture that we can't rely on ourselves, that our heart is deceitful and wicked, and we can't trust it, and our mind will lead us astray. And so it's sad that, you know, he taught generations of people beyond him that you can find this peace within yourself and find, you know, strive for enlightenment. But in its own way, it was probably just him seeking for some meaning in life beyond yeah. what was available to him at the time. I mean, not everybody back then, you know, the Christian religion hadn't been founded yet. Christ didn't exist. And the Judaism that that Christ came out of was a very small sect of a very small group of people that lived as nomads in a very small mm-hmm. part of the world. So it wasn't something that everybody had access to back during that time. Yeah, people are out there looking for meaning their entire lives. Mm-hmm. So we should appreciate their search and use it as a commonality to guide to the answer. Right. I guess. Yeah. Is- and like I said earlier, it's like you, you know, a wasted opportunity for me, but we should always be willing to interact with people of other faiths, not shut them out, not put the walls up, yeah. be willing to talk to them because that is, you know, be curious, ask them what they believe and why they believe it. And but be at the same time, be prepared to give answers if they ask you in return. It should be a two-way conversation. So you ask them so that they'll ask you so that you can share your faith and share the mm-hmm. the true salvation that comes through Christ. And that is, you know, the whole point of initiating these conversations to so make sure you're ready. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a scene in this movie where while they were actually doing the rescue they had the Buddhist monks praying, and they gave you the, the translation of their prayer, and it was something to the end of, oh, spirits of the forest, mm-hmm. we make apologies for these boys if they've offended you. And it was just like this this whole statement of concern over offense and apologizing for it on behalf of someone else. And and there was a, a point also earlier in the movie where they were talking about Princess Nangnan, who is... I guess the patron saint of the caves, because the mountain is shaped like a sleeping princess. And so that's where they, they based it on her. And the local superstition said that she was supposedly angry with the boys and had trapped them in the mountain with her tears. So the one thing that really comes out of this movie is that while they do have this Buddhist faith, they do still seem to make deities out of the forest and the mountain. They're still worshiping yeah. things, and they also have a lot of superstition, you know, like, uh, and I think the superstition does come a little bit out of Buddhism, because they do believe in karma, you know, that that good, mm-hmm. that you are rewarded for good things, and you are punished for bad things, and your good things have to outweigh your bad things so that your rewards outweigh your punishments. And so, there is this overall feeling through the movie of superstition, belief in in punishment and luck. And and so it permeates the whole movie because it permeates their culture. And it makes me think how sad that is. If something bad happens to you, you start racking your brain to think, what did I do that was bad because now I'm being yes. punished, you know? Yeah, exactly. And we know that we live in a sin-cursed world, so bad things sometimes happen to good people. And it simply is because of the curse of sin that has 
is destroying our world. And it's just so sad to think of living under the stress of constantly having to do good in order to outweigh the bad that you inadvertently do. And uh, thank God that we have a a blood-bought salvation over the bad things that we do, and we don't have to worry about karma. But one of the things that, you know, thinking about other faiths and the fact that they are praying to spirits of the forest and the mountain and, and worrying about offense and obviously having deities, even though Buddhism is not supposed to have deities, it brought to mind, to me, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, it says, About eating food sacrificed to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. And that is 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. And then the other scripture that comes to mind for me is 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. And I wanted to say that because we don't see any Christians at all in this account, this true yeah. story. And and that's the sad thing, because while there were people that flooded in from the U.S. and from Great Britain and Australia and numerous other countries, you know, we don't see anybody Christian who is active in the story. Now, whether that was the case that there weren't any Christians there or that they just come from, you know, Western cultures where faith is just not a thing anymore. Uh, Rick actually says when he's trying to give a, a Buddhist blessed bracelet, he says, well, I don't believe in luck. And he wanted nothing mm. to do with it. And that, to me, just kind of, and not that he wasn't superstitious. I think that's good. I don't think we should be superstitious. I, even as Christians, especially, I don't believe we should be superstitious. And we shouldn't believe in luck. But I think that they really kind of present at least Rick, and possibly John as well, as being more, I guess, humanistic or atheistic. Yeah. Which makes sense, because that is, British culture has really been lost its Christian underpinnings. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the fact that John, who was giving Rick the the bracelet, understood what it meant to the mother who was still watching, I I think that was important, too. Yeah. It definitely showed concern for her, regardless of what their own beliefs were. Right. To close out the topic, I wanted to stress that Yes, understanding these other religions and being curious and interacting and and befriending practitioners of other religions is a uh, a great way to to get this commonality. But it is important to remember that a person's faith is either entirely God centered and Christ centered, or it is utterly ineffective. Mm. It's the only way to salvation is Christ and. We don't need to be standing on a street corner preaching it, but you also can't say, well, you know, maybe the Buddhists are saved by Buddha, or the Allah sends his folks to... Um, their paradise? Yeah, their paradise. I can't remember what they call it. Yeah. First Corinthians 10.21 says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share the Lord's table and the table of demons. It You are either 
to paraphrase George W. Bush, you're either for us or you're against us. Right. And you can't even be really lukewarm because God says, I, you know, in Revelation, he was telling them, he's like, don't be lukewarm or I want to spew you out of my mouth. It's like, yeah. Now, personally, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I have heard that you want either want your coffee piping hot or you want it to be an iced coffee. You don't want it lukewarm. Mm-hmm. If it's lukewarm, it's no good. <laughs> so <laughs> I can understand the spewing out of the mouth thing. Okay, well, before we move on to the next topic, I do want to re- tell you the ways that you can give us feedback. That would be the easiest, of course, would be going to the show notes for this episode, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 132. I can't believe we're at 132 episodes. That just blows my mind. Wow. I know. You can also call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail, or you can send a text to that number as well. We would love either one. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com, or you can join us in our social medias that I mentioned earlier. So we do love to interact with our listeners, and we love to actually get feedback on you know, what we're doing good and what you changes you would like to the way we do things in our podcast. We are open to criticism, and we are open to input. So we would love to hear from you. And, you know, we should mention that one of the ways you can provide feedback is to come and listen to us record each episode live as we have Matt joining us in the listening area right now on Discord. It is a wonderful thing. Thank you very much for joining us, Matt. And feel free to send us messages in that live chat as we're talking. Yep. So our next topic is a global community. And one of the things they say at the very end of 13 Lives, they have like, you know, they're like kind of wrapping up with just text on the screen like they do in in some of the movies that are are true to life. They said that 5,000 people from 77 countries volunteered in some capacity during this rescue. And Mm. that just blows my mind. I didn't even know there were 77 countries able to send volunteers to something, Uh, you know? I mean... Out of of the 205 in the world? (laughs) I mean, that just blows my mind. One of the videos that I watched, the one of the villagers of the the farmers that lost their crops to the diversion of the water, uh, she said mm-hmm. in the interview, she was saying that she would go in at 3 a.m. in the morning and cook food and then carry away trash before she'd go back to tending her fields. Hmm. So everybody in the local region were tripping in and doing what they could to help. And it was just like... You know, after looking into Buddhism and understanding the whole concept of karma, a lot of that outward compassion and volunteering may have been dictated to them by their faith. You know, it's like you have to do that in order to keep your karma balanced. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, I don't want to disregard the amount of sacrifice that it took all of these people to come together like this. And, And, you know, these divers... They came from other countries. They, I don't know whether they flew it on their own dime, but they were not being paid. Yeah. They were all people who had lives outside of their diving. Their, their cave rescuers was a side gig. It was kind of like a hobby, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. One, uh, John was an IT guy and Rick was a retired fireman. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine an IT guy who's like, oh, let's go diving in caves for the weekend. But we all have strange hobbies. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, so it was such a tremendous act of charity. Uh, some of the other videos I saw, the big giant pumps they brought in three were actually brought in by a pumping company. They were not government pumps. They were not paid for by the government. They were brought in because they saw the need. They were like, the government pumps are not big enough to move enough water, so we're going to bring our pumps in at our own expense and start pumping water. So that was an act of charity. The food mm -hmm. that fed everybody at the rescue camp was all donated from various organizations. Maybe even the surrounding communities were sending food. The surrounding countries were sending food. So all of that was donated. Obviously, the time and expertise of the actual rescuers were donated. And then the villagers who lost their fields actually donated their time to cook, do laundry, and remove trash from the camp. And at least yeah. one of them did not take the money that was offered to them from the government because oh. she said, I, the government offered me money and seeds. And I turned down the money because the rescue effort was already so expensive that she didn't want mm. to drain the, the government's coffers. So I thought that was interesting. So, yeah. so, I mean, just the amount of, you know, people just coming in and pitching in and doing what they could, each one bringing in their skills. In fact, I think there was a quote in the movie from the governor. He was like, I am pursuing every avenue. And what they don't show in the movie is that they were actually had caving and mountain climbing people that were trying to find ways to get to the boys from the top of the mountain. Mm. And so they okay. were they were literally climbing all over the mountain and every shaft and hole they could find, they were sending somebody down inside to see how far it went. And hmm. they were climbing all over that mountain trying to, to find ways to get down to them because they really didn't think that going out through the entrance of the cave was going to be doable. And so they they were exploring other avenues the whole time. Another thing they didn't show in the movie was that the diversion of the water from the top of the mountain didn't start until the rescue. They actually had two cave systems that were intersecting inside the mountain, and they were diverting the water from the stream into the other cave system and injecting it out into the crops. So that's where the major crop oh, damage came from, was that they realized that the two caves were both being inundated from the streams, and so they were directing the streams into the other cave to try and get the water out of the cave that they needed to get into. So, huh. It was it was just interesting doing some of the background research on this and and uh, seeing exactly what happened with all of that. But it it was pretty much the way they showed it. You know the conversations they had, like going to the village and saying, "Hey, you know this is what we need to do." And they were like, "Will it help the boys?" And they were like, "We don't know. We can't guarantee anything, but." It would help us it with the might effort. Give them a chance. Yeah. And they were okay, it's agreed, wipe out our fields. And that was pretty much the way it happened. And that's just Yeah, it, it's I don't I don't know if this is uh, accurate to real life, but in the movie, I mean they turn together and, and do a huddle for all of like ten seconds. <laughs> and then she turns around and says, Yep, we'll do it. Yep. Yep. One of the things that jumped out at me, especially as I follow the news coming out of India regarding the persecution of castes and the persecution of Christians was um, Thailand has a very similar caste-like system. Mm -hmm. 
and the lowest level of the caste-like system is called stateless. They they come from uh, a region that is uh, really unclaimed by any nation. So, in fact, uh, UNHCR Thailand says uh, it's estimated that at least 10 million people are stateless worldwide. They're often not considered nationals by any state under the operation of its law. They often aren't allowed to go to school, see a doctor, get a job, open a bank account, buy a house, or even get married. And, I mean, think about what your life would be like if you could not do any of those things. Yeah. (laughs) It would be devastating. Yeah. And Howard did a great job demonstrating how impactful this stateless condition is when the mother, and I think it was the mother of the the youngest, Yeah, the littlest boy, yeah comes up and uh, I don't remember if she was talking to the rescuers or if she was talking to the governor's team. She asked, will my son be rescued too? My my boy is stateless. Will he be rescued too? Can you imagine living in existence where your son is trapped with 12 other boys and you live in a society where you question whether He'll even get rescued. They might leave your son. Yeah. Yeah. That is mind-boggling to me. Mm. Yeah. And and he wasn't the only stateless one. I think there was four total. It was the coach and three of the boys were stateless. Yeah. Yeah. And it said at the end that, uh, that the Thai government granted them citizenship. Which is wonderful, but... It doesn't solve the problem. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's good for those four. Yeah. Let's maybe see some real change. Yeah, I don't know. You know, to me, it's so funny because we have nations in Europe and even here, you know, in North America where we're fighting over territory. You know, this is my territory. No, that's your Mm -hmm. territory. That's, That's my territory. And to have territories under dispute. And then you have places in Asia where they none of them want to claim it. It's like, I don't want that. Do you want that? No, I don't want that. I don't want those 10 million people. So it boggles my mind that, you know, they just don't want it. They don't want the responsibility for it. They're fighting over who should have to have it, you know, instead of fighting over the possession of it. So it's, um, Hmm. it's interesting. And, you know, it's, we hear it. Are you just watching? We have done our fair share of superhero movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then some. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have, we've talked about the importance of teamwork before mm-hmm. quite, quite a few times. And I know one of the ones we've mentioned before is one of the verses is Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. If either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. I looked at this one specifically because Howard shows very specifically two completely separate efforts that were working so closely together at behest of the governor. You know, the rescue efforts by the divers and the efforts of those on the mountainside led by the hydro engineer. Right. To divert the water. Yeah. It really was a case where they were severely complimentary and uh, really just spoke to me of this verse from Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And, you know, that, that really ties in, too, to the sense of community within the the team as well, hidden in that cave. Because, you know, when they came and they asked them, you know, it's it's been 10 days, you guys are so strong, how are you doing it? And they said, coach helped us. We We help each other. 
uh, there's this mm-hmm. sense of community and team building and, and uplifting and, and being there for each other. And that it permeates this whole movie because it's, you know, the two efforts, the team themselves, and even the divers, you know, relying on each other to each do their part and to be there to support them during because I mean, the four divers who actually dove the boys out were supported by uh, nine other divers that were helping them along the way. So and then the, on mm-hmm. top of that was all the divers from the Thai uh, SEAL team who were staging all of the air tanks and making sure that, you know, all of these other things were were not, uh, provided, you know, to to get it all done. So yeah, this this whole thing was a real sense of teamwork and community building. And it was just uh, amazing to see. And it was it was crossing the language barrier. I mean, from the very beginning, when the they find the cave flooded and knew the boys were missing, one of the first people they talked to was uh, Vern, who was a, a British guy that had he would just like to explore caves and he had actually mapped the cave yeah. and he was there and, and he knew the names of the, the, you know, cave divers who were the best in the world. And so, and that was all true to life. When I was watching some of the actual documentaries, they said that he was one of the first people that they called in because he had the knowledge and he was an international person that they were willing to trust. And that was mm-hmm. a sense of community that is, you know, uplifting. So, you know, before we close up this, I, I want to read Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, because I think this ties this into the Christian faith and the mm-hmm. way we should be working yeah. as Christians. And it's, we should have, quite honestly, should have this sense of community in the Christian church. We don't always, in fact, it's rare, <laughs> but we should have. This is, yeah. this is the way it should look. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this is the sense of community, this team building, this uh, leaning on each other in times of need. This is the way the body of Christ should be looking. Unfortunately, we're all sinful, so we fail at it, but that is the ideal. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, really kind of goes directly into another theme, which is similar, but it's, it's almost like they're the front and back of the same coin. But while the, while they're building this community, we've already d- discussed some of the sacrifices that had to be made to rescue these boys. And, you know, first off, of course, were the villagers who sacrificed their fields and how willingly they were willing to do it. But I thought it was very interesting. You know, the Thai, the Thai seals in one of the documentaries that I watched and the Navy captain of the seal divers said that he looked into his men's eyes and he knew that they were willing to give absolutely everything, including their lives, to see these boys rescued. In fact, there's a, I think, a team chant uh, early on in the movie where they were like, we won't go home until the boys are found. So that was, you know, their dedication, their sacrifice. They were willing to do absolutely anything. And I think that actually kind of contrasts a little bit with at least Rick, because there was a point where he he's like, I have zero interest in dying. Uh, we're not going to die. And early on, yeah. and then when it started raining, I think it was like the third day of the actual rescue, he was like, I'm not going in if I think I'm, you know, there's no way to get out. And they all kind of looked at him like, well, are we going to go? <laughs> so, because they got there and, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I I actually caught that line, uh-huh. and the more I thought about it, 
Um, and maybe, maybe it's just from the perspective I wanted to view it. I feel like he said it to reassure the other divers. Mm, that if I'm willing to go, it's safe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. I mean, he, he seemed to come across as being the most skilled of all of them. Like, they all looked up to him as knowing exactly what he was doing and being able to judge the conditions and whether the possibility of things. So maybe you're right. Yeah. But I don't know how willing they were to actually sacrifice themselves. I think it for them, it was more of they knew they could get in and out of the cave safely. And so it wasn't really a sacrificial thing. But when you do see them interviewed and stuff, it sounds like, you know, they've inured themselves to the difficulty and the danger of what they do, because it it is something, I mean, this is not the only cave rescue they've done. And yeah. for for them, it's just part of their commitment to that. I don't, I wouldn't call it a hobby, but that occupation, they know it's yeah. dangerous. And so they've just in evocation versus vocation. Right. Yeah. It's just something that they face so much. It's probably the same way in which, you know, NASCAR drivers, when they get in the behind the wheel, know that there's a potential of being in a wreck or jockeys on horses know there's a potential of falling off and being trampled to death. It's, it's mm-hmm. a level of danger that you just no is there and you just accept it and and move past it and just don't think about it. So I don't know that their diving after these boys was literally a sacrifice or not, but we do know that for the Navy SEALs it was because one of the divers did perish yep. during the rescue and one perished afterwards. So they did lose two of their divers. And that that was probably one of the saddest things was the, the final line in the yeah, one of the wrap-ups. One of the wrap-ups. It was, they said, we're all packed up and ready to go. And, and then the Navy captain said, all but one. So it was just the reminder that they did lose one. So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. um, there was definitely uh, a price to pay. That was actually one of the, yeah. the lines in the movie. Th- this was not an easy thing that they did. And ev- everybody who came together in that community was doing so uh, out of an understanding that the sacrifice was worth it. And even before they even knew the boys were alive, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did it for a chance. Right. John fifteen twelve through 13 says, this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. So, yeah. Hmm. And obviously, we can't talk about sacrifice without, you know, referring to the fact that, you know, the whole point of this, of that verse was, you know, Christ laid down his life. He was the sacrifice for our sin. And so that is the, the greatest love in the world is the sacrifice that, that he gave on the cross for us so that we didn't have to die for our sins. He did it despite how terrible person I am. <laughs> yeah. And I am too. Yeah. Selfish and, self-centered and i mean when we think of all of the things like in my state i live in northern kentucky but we had some severe flooding just you know a month or two ago and lives were lost lots of property lost and at the time i'm thinking boy i would love to be able to help but i'm not capable of going and helping and i i'm thinking now i look back at that is like i don't have enough of a sense of community 
to want to actually go and donate whatever time and effort, whether I am physically strong enough to get in there and start clearing away debris and helping rebuild. I may not be able to do anything like that, but I might be able to go and find other ways to help because there were people who were cooking food. There were people who were doing laundry. I mean, there's there's a spot for everybody in, in a situation like that. And I need to be myself need to start learning to look for opportunities to help my community mm-hmm. and sacrifice my own comfort and my own uh, daily routine to do it. Yeah, I see. Um, I've mentioned before that I, uh, I'm i a voice engineer for the Christian Broadcasting Network, and I see uh, the men and women who work on the Operation Blessings teams and the disaster recovery teams, and it's their dedication is just out of this world. <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah. And, you know, not just those teams, but the teams that – that go to these war-torn areas are really, really something special. Yeah. Before we move on, I do want to remind you that you could financially support this podcast. We want to thank our current subscribers, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman for their generous monthly support. We are listener supported. So if you would also care to give to us either on a monthly basis or by a single donation, you can do so by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Patreon or areyoujustwatching.com slash PayPal. And those are the two options that we currently have. I have been exploring some other things. There's this new group called Locals where I believe you can have financial support through, and I have been exploring locals. I don't know exactly how well it would work for our podcast, but it is something I have been exploring. So if you view content and support content through locals, I would love to hear whether that is something that functions well for you. But those are the two ways you can support us, and we do appreciate the financial giving. It does help us support the cost of maintaining our website and all of the other expenses that we have. Yeah. I do want to talk mainly about the experience versus training that we kind of see in this movie. You know, it's interesting in the portrayal of the movie that Ron Howard kind of made it look like there was a kind of a tension between the the Navy SEALs, which when I first started watching that movie, that really threw me off that they call them Navy SEALs. Because (laughs) when I think Navy SEALs, I think of our U.S. Navy. Yes. And it it threw me off that this is the Thai Navy SEALs. So it's like, why can't you use a different name? Because we already took SEALs. But (laughs) anyway, what does SEAL stand for? Is it C? You know, that's a good question. Sea, air, and land, the three theaters of the commando operations. Yep, that makes sense. Sea, air, and land. So uh, maybe it is something different in in Thai and they just translate it to seal. I don't know. But anyway, that was a little bit of a buddy trail. The seals seem to be competent, but when they get into the caves, they start making a lot of mistakes. And when the British divers come in, uh, the SEALs are a little bit obnoxious about it. It's like they call them amateurs. Uh, at one point, they kind of mock them as being old men. And I don't know whether that was actually the case or whether Ron Howard kind of built that as a suspense or attention to make them yeah, the movie. Yeah, attention. When I was watching some of the interviews and stuff, it didn't sound like there was that kind of animosity there. But you never know. I mean, it's like 
seals tend to think of themselves as being like the highest trained. I know at least in the US Navy, if you're a Navy SEAL, it's that's like a really big deal, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. I live in the Hampton Roads area, which is SEAL Central. Yeah. <laughs> they probably think they're better than everybody else. They walk on water here, I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah. So I would assume that, you know, with all of that training and that building up of being, you know, the, the ultimate soldier who is capable of fighting in sea and air and on land, you know, that, you know, they're commandos, they're, they're the best. And then to have these, you know, British guys who dive on the side, you know, that's not their main occupation. And they come in and say, hey, we know this better than you. Uh, move over and let us do it. <laughs> I could see how that would be a little bit of an insult, maybe. But at the same time, the expertise of these cave divers was needed. They don't show it as much in the movie. They kind of indicate it with a, f a few lines and a few scenes. But Mm -hmm. The British divers were so much better at diving in the caves than the seals that it was, there was absolutely no comparison. Yeah. The round trip where they actually went in and found the boys, they were scouting. They didn't know where they were going. They were just following mm -hmm. where the cave would go. They were laying down line as they went. And when they came to the end of the line and they popped up, there were the boys. They videoed them, turned around, and went back. And the total trip was under seven hours round trip. Mm -hmm. When the first SEAL team followed the <laughs> rope, okay, the line was already laid. All they had to do was follow the line. It took them 23 hours. And they only came back, three out of the seven divers came back. And the reason being was, when they got there, they were so exhausted, they had to sleep before they could come back. And they had used too much air. They each took four tanks, and almost all of them used three the, on the way down. And so they only had enough mm -hmm. tanks to send three divers back. And, and they had to, yeah, they had to send tanks back in. Yeah. So that was how much better these guys were. I mean, exponentially better <laughs> at diving in caves. Mm. It was just because they knew how to do it. And they said that. It was like there was a line in there that says, hey, no offense, but you guys are trained to dive in open water and not confined spaces. Rick and I have been diving in caves just like this for 30 years now. So they knew how to do it. This was training and experience that surpassed anything that even SEALs knew how to do. One of the things I noticed in the movie, and I don't know how true this is, because I was in the documentaries, I was really trying to notice, and, and they just never showed enough of the kits. But I noticed in the movie, they made a point yeah. of showing that the cave divers rigged, their rigs were completely different than the seals. So yes. most of the scuba diving rigs, you have your, your air regulator in your mouth and whatever, and it goes and your tanks are strapped on your back. And I noticed mm -hmm. that the cave divers, the British team, carried their tanks like under their arms, like on their sides instead of on their back. And I suspect they learned to do that in order they rigged their rigs or to try and keep their bodies as slender as possible so that they could get through cracks yeah. and maneuver through tight spaces. And I think they kind of showed that the tanks kept on the seals kept hitting things and they have problems like getting through tight spaces because their tanks were hitting things. 
And I think I even saw in one of the documentaries, they made some comment about that, that some of the initial holes they found to get through were so tight that they were having problems getting through with their tanks. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I it, I feel like they made that part of the cause for Saman's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he got his tank caught in the rope. Because he got his tank. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know that if that was the true or not, because it, from everything that I could see and everything that I found, it sounded to me that he just ran out of air. And it was mm-hmm. one of those situations where, you know, they were using more air than they needed to, and he was on his return trip. And he just, he maybe he didn't check his gauge or or what, but he just, he ran out of air. That was really, that to me, that scene in the movie was the hardest to watch, to watch him sucking air out of his tanks and there was no air coming. He didn't drown. He just, he died because he didn't get enough air. Suffocated. He suffocated and the regulator didn't come out of his mouth until he was already passed out. So I don't think he drowned, but that was super sad to watch. Yeah. So the other disrespect that they showed was when they, they did find the boys and they came back in Thai. I mean, the subtitles are great because, you know, the, the British divers can't hear, understand what they're saying. And they're like yelling, the old men found the boys, <laughs> really mocking them because they were old men. And I mean, they were older than the seals were, but their experience, the weight of their experience is just so well demonstrated that, you know, these guys may have, the seals may have been diving for, you know, 10 10 years, maybe, max. They were too young to have yeah. been more than that. Yeah, the, your average na- Navy SEAL is late 20s at the outside. Mm-hmm. Because once you physically start to decline... You get a dust you, job. You've got to... <laughs> yeah. You, take, you move into a command position and quit doing this strenuous stuff. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that that the movie did a good job in in demonstrating was that experience comes at a cost too. Yeah. The the weight is uh well well demonstrated. When they came back with the video, they were saying be careful who sees that video. Right. By the time they walked out of the cave, the entire camp had seen the the boys were all alive. But was it Rick? Yeah. It was Rick said. I think yeah. He he was like Oh, no, they all know. (laughs) And I'm paraphrasing because he used a bad word. (laughs) Yeah. He knew the most likely scenario was that the boys were still going to die in that cave. Yeah. At the end of the movie, they said that less than a month later, the the caves were completely submerged Mm -hmm. for eight months. Yeah. He knew that the... The news getting out about the boys being alive could make it so much worse. Right. And it brought to mind a verse from one of your favorite books, <laughs> Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes one eighteen. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Mm, yeah. And I did not realize, but this verse is one of the verses that's basis for that saying, ignorance is bliss. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that, because they were dealing with the media right after that. And he says, what do you want me to tell them? We found the boys, now let's watch them all die. So mm-hmm. he he was a very upset, because everybody was so cheerful and thanking him and just so excited. And he's sitting here going, they're going to die. You know, 
This is what he told the governor. He says, all this water pumping, flooding fields, praying to shrines is BS. I'm not having it. Those boys are never coming out. Never. We brought a man out on our first dive and he completely panicked, almost drowned. And that was a very short swim. You try and dive those kids the whole way. All you'll be bringing out is dead bodies. And then a little bit later, John says, well, you knew we'd find them. So they were confident they were going to find him. And Rick said, I didn't expect to find them alive. So yeah, that that was the whole situation with Rick was that he thought they were going to do body recovery. He had no clue that they were going to be bringing kids out alive. Yeah. And And you're right. I mean, the experience of all of the rescues they'd done up till now, they never brought anybody out alive. And so for him, this was not what he had set himself up for. And I think that even though he was the one, I think he really was in real life, the one who came up with the idea of how they were going to get him out. So mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing that he didn't allow himself to shut down. You know, it's like, he's the one that it speaks reality. It's like, there's no way to get these guys out. But then he doesn't give up. He keeps thinking until he comes up with a plan. Yeah, I appreciated that yeah. too. So I wanted to tie this in a little bit into our Christian walk, because that's kind of the whole point, you know, applying a worldview to this. I was thinking about how experience plays into our Christian walk. And some of that is just the obvious. It's like when we become new believers, we're like babes in Christ and we don't have the experience. We haven't read our Bible a lot. We have a lot of passion. In fact, new believers tend to be the most passionate and the most emotional of Christians. It's like they really love Jesus. It just exudes out of every pore. And that's beautiful because that's the way we should always feel about our love for Christ. It should always be that first love, that first just joy of being saved and having that awesome relationship with Christ. And as we progress as Christians, a lot of times we get distracted or we lose that joy. But there's also a level of experience that comes with walking with the Lord for years and years and years and years. And experienced Christians can be any age. You don't have to like you know, apply that to old age versus young age. It all depends on when you got saved. But there is an experience level in following our faith, you know, and yeah, putting people in leadership of the body of believers who have that tried and true experience level of faith, not just, you know, first love passion kind of thing. And, and I kind of look at that as the difference between the Navy SEALs who are very passionate about their diving and very passionate about mm-hmm. rescuing those boys, but they didn't have the experience. And so it's the British cave divers who've been diving for 30 years who knew how to get around in these caves. And they went in in a very practical way. You know, it's like, I have zero interest in dying. I'm going in. It's a challenge, but it's something that we've done before and we know we can do it. And it was a very different way of approaching what they were doing. And so I think that that ties in really well to the Christian faith. Some of the scriptures that come in on yeah. in on this, and most of it, frankly, is from the Old Testament, but it still holds true today. And a lot of it just has to do with wisdom, you know, having the wisdom to know. what What is that saying? It's not scriptural, but it's like knowing the difference. Grant me the strength to change the things I can, the patience to accept the things I cannot and the wisdom to know the difference, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. It's, it, don't they say it's Mother Teresa's prayer or something like I, that? It might be. It, it does hold true to some extent, you know, that we ha- that wisdom is knowing 
the difference, you know, of what we can and can't do. Mm-hmm. So Job twelve twelve through 15 says, Wisdom is found with the elderly, and understanding comes with long life. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are His. Whatever He tears down cannot be rebuilt. Whoever He imprisons cannot be released. When He withholds water, everything dries up, and when He releases it, it destroys the land. And I put that verse in because I was thinking about uh, not just the the status of the wisdom between you know the the cave divers and the seals. I was also thinking about the boys being trapped underground and how the people were so superstitious about you know Princess Nangna mm-hmm. and trapping her with her tears or whatever. And I was thinking about God's judgment because He withholds the water and things dry up, and when He releases it, it destroys the land. We were seeing the water destroying the land in this and. I think sometimes when we talk about the goodness of God, we sometimes forget that God is also just and that we live in a sin-cursed world and a lot of the things that we see that's going wrong, we don't want to attribute it to God. But God, because he's sovereign, is ultimately in control of that. Those boys getting trapped in an early monsoon, he was in control of that. The fact that they were able to survive because they had their coach with them that helped them, you know, pull together. God was in that. Mm -hmm. The British divers who had the experience and the know-how to get to them and then come up with the idea to how to get them out safely, God was in that. So there is a level of wisdom in knowing the God's sovereignty in everything that happens and being able to trust him through that. Yeah. And then there's also Proverbs 19.20, listen to counsel and receive instructions so that you may be wise later in life. You know, if those... Navy SEALs had been willing, and I think in the end they really were willing to take advice and to be trained and understand what they needed to do. I mean, they all got out, except for the one who died. They all got out of the cave safely. Yeah. And they probably learned a lot from those British divers. I imagine they would probably be pretty good at cave rescue after that. So <laughs> It's experience, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they gained experience from that. I mean, they all everything they'd done prior to that had been open water scuba diving, and they gained experience from being able to have yeah. experienced divers show them how to do it. And then um, Proverbs twenty twenty nine: the glory of young men mm. is their strength, and the splendor of old men is gray hair. So Proverbs has a lot about wisdom and, and all of that kind of stuff, and you know, the the fact that they mocked them because they were old men still bothers me. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you don't just discount people. I mean, when they have the experience and the know-how, we should as we should always, of course, I'm getting older now. So I'm the one possibly with experience and know-how. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel it. Yeah. It's sad because everybody in my department at work is younger than me. So i except for one person who's been in the department almost as long as I am, and she's one month older than me. The two of us are kind of like the moms now, because everybody else is younger, and we have a lot of incoming kids, you know, right out of college. And sometimes I feel like I'm a fifth wheel, and sometimes I feel like they appreciate, you know, my experience and, and want to learn from me. And that always makes me feel a little better about how long I've been there. But I actually have Proverbs twenty twenty nine in my university email signature block, being a fifty uh, two year old junior. <laughs> All right, so one last little thing 
is very interesting when you uh, watch the politics of this is that there's, I guess there's a minister and he would be like the prime minister of Thailand. And then there's provinces in Thailand and each province has a governor. And in this particular province, the governor, when the boys go missing, he is actually on his way out. He's literally stepping down the end of that week. Mm-hmm. And it turns into this massive international th- scandal. I don't know whether scandal is the right word, but he's in a situation where he's not really going to be in power very long. And then the minister comes in and leaves him in charge and basically says, you're you're going to stay in until this is done. And there was a line. Plus, the rumor is the governor's been sacked. This was supposed to have been his last week here, and now he's been ordered to stay on just in case they need a fall guy. So the whole point of him staying in was that they thought that this was going to end poorly and the minister wanted to have a governor to blame. And interestingly enough, scapegoat is a biblical concept. It is indeed. So in Leviticus sixteen eight through 10, it says, After Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place, he is to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness of an for an uninhabitable place. So that is literally where the scapegoat term came from. I guess in one of the translations, it was actually called a scapegoat. Yeah, I think so. I felt sorry for the governor because he was left in power basically as... I think with with the thought that this is not going to end well and we're going to blame you for it. And he did everything that he could. He was a good leader. He took all the advice that was given to him. He explored every avenue. And in the end, he was successful and he was a great leader. In fact, they show him, the minister tells them to go through with the operation with sedating the boys to get them out which was kept secret. In fact, a mm-hmm. lot of the news items that I watched from the actual rescue, nobody ever mentioned that they were sedated because it was not released. Everybody just thought they were guiding mm-hmm. them out. But after the minister left, he the governor turned to the divers and said, if anything happens, it's on me. It's my fault. And yeah. I just thought, what a servant leader. He knows the whole reason he's still in power is so that they can have somebody to blame it all on. And he just accepts that responsibility. And I, you know, I felt sorry for him and I was impressed by him. And I, it would be interesting to see what happened to his career after this, because in the end, he really came out looking really good. I was curious if any of the documentaries that you watched had, had mentioned They did that. not, no. All right. So wrapping up the story, I do want to make mention of a YouTube channel that I was recently introduced to, and it is about diving. There is a YouTube channel called Adventures with Purpose. And this was, I think, in early 2020, there was this group of guys that had started a YouTube channel called Adventures with Purpose. And their whole adventures, they were open water scuba divers. And their purpose was to go into bodies of water and find junk that didn't belong there and remove it so that to clean up the America's waterways. Mm Mm-hmm. It was either in 2019 or 2020. I think it was may have been actually 2020. They found a car underwater that had a body in it. And mm. they were just joking. Because they, they had obviously a great deal of 
just fun, you know, diving because it was something they did for fun. And they, they mm-hmm. would use their sonar, side sonar to find things under the water that didn't belong there. And then they would dive the wreck and then they would inflate it with, you know, these airbags and bring it up to the surface. And then they would tow it out and junk it properly instead of having it rot inside the lakes. And they had gotten this car all the way up to the surface and they were videoing inside the car and there was a body in it. And they immediately stopped what they were doing, called 911 and declared it a crime scene. Hmm. After that, they realized that they had a greater purpose. Rather than just cleaning the waterways, they started working cold cases where people went missing with vehicles. And they have recovered to date as of this last month. They have recovered 24 missing people, closed 24 wow. uh, cold cases, just in the two years that they've been doing it. And if you're fascinated by the diving that is, you know, that you see going on in these caves, it's, it, you know, it just is a different purpose. I mean, they're not doing cave diving, but it, it is really fascinating to watch them work. So mm. if you are interested in that kind of thing, it's a YouTube channel and it's free to watch and enjoy. So I think that's it. We will wrap this this episode up. We don't know what we are doing yet in October. It's actually a discussion we're going to have in a few minutes. But if you have any recommendations, we'd love to hear them. Thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.